All right, Genesis chapter 46, if you'll take your Bibles and join me there. Thanks to Chris. Um, If you've been a part of music before, you realize that when you practice with someone else and prepare to do music with someone else, and then the someone else is not there, it changes things. It does. I mean, the piano is meant to be the leading instrument, and now suddenly the guitar is the leading instrument, so it it affects things a lot. So we appreciate Chris being so adjustable and and just wanting to to help us to worship God with music. So we, we praise God for providing for us in that way. We are headed toward the Lord's Supper this morning. And we can even do that from Genesis chapter 46. It's one of the many, many reasons that I love the Word of God, because all roads point to Jesus Christ. No matter where you are, no matter what page, what story, what, um, um, which one of Abraham's descendants you're talking about, or which one of Christ's apostles you're listening to, uh, they're all pointing to Jesus Christ. And so it's going to be a lot of fun moving through Genesis chapter 46 to head to the Lord's Supper this morning. And if you'll join me in a word of prayer as we begin... Uh, we'll ask for God's help in doing just that. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for who you are, first of all. We praise you for being uh, the one true and living God. Uh, you alone are holy, holy, holy. So we were hearing um, from uh, Sunday school this morning in the book of Revelation, you demonstrate your holiness in a lot of different ways. We love to talk about your grace and your mercy, and your compassion for people like us, people who don't deserve that compassion, people who have earned the opposite. And then we look at the book of Revelation and we see what's going to be done to those who are given what they deserve, Uh, those who have been enemies of God, those who have not believed, uh, those who have taken other pathways, those who have practiced idolatry. In the end, uh, you will display your holiness through your your perfect wrath and justice. So scary. Uh, It will be so scary at that time that people will hide in the mountains and and want to die because death would be easier than experiencing your wrath in life. So all of these things that you have revealed about yourself cause us to worship you. And that's why we're here this morning. Uh, We want you to be exalted. We want you to be recognized as different from everyone and everything else. We want you to be seen as worthy of the worship of all created things, and especially created things that have been recreated, your people, those of us who have been born again by your Holy Spirit, who have been regenerated and brought to life spiritually, those of us who have your Holy Spirit living within us, and, and we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You did all of that to receive the worship that you deserve, to get the worship uh, directed toward your Son as you want Him to receive for your glory. Father, we know that's what you want, and that's, that's what we want as well. But you know how we struggle to give it to you. You know how we struggle with uh, the fight with our own flesh. We struggle with temptations from the outside. Even in a place in a time such as this right now where we have gathered for the purpose of worship, we still struggle to do it in a way that you deserve. That's why we come to you every Sunday as beggars. We come recognizing that struggle. We come aching because of that struggle. We desperately want to recognize you as you deserve. We want to be enamored with your son. So help us to do that, even through this section of Jacob and Joseph's lives. Father, I pray that you'll point us to Jesus, that you will use this as a picture of the Savior who has come, the Savior who is infinitely better than Joseph was. Help me as I teach. I pray that you will protect my words, protect my mind, so that these folks hear only from you. Only your word, because only your word will bring glory to you. And that's what we want. So I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
I want to ask you a question as we start this morning, and this is a version of a question that I've asked you many, many times. I ask it because I think it's the question that must be answered. I think when we go through Scripture, no matter where we're reading, God is pushing us to, to look at this and to think about this and to have the right answer for this question. So here's the question. What is it that would make you say, I can die happy? I can die happy. I am fulfilled. I am satisfied. I need nothing else. What is it? Is it something you already have? Is there something that you don't have yet, but you see it? You, it's your target. You, you think about it all the time. You're always thinking, if I could just get that, then I'd be happy. There'd be nothing else in life for me. Nothing else could add to my happiness. That's it. That, that's the key. Or you have it right now. What is it? I can die happy, fulfilled. I need nothing else. I want you thinking about that as we go through Genesis chapter 46 this morning. I want you thinking about it all the time. But especially here in Genesis chapter 46, you're going to see why I asked that question again. Okay, So I'll come back to it. When you look back to last week, when you look back to chapter 45, you'll remember that that's where we saw, finally, Joseph's big reveal to his brothers. We waited how many weeks? Kevin took us on this trail with Joseph playing games with his brothers, but he never would come out and say that he was their brother. Well, finally, last week, chapter 45, we got that from Joseph, told his brothers, I am Joseph, your brother. Then we got to see that emotional reunion, that, that reconciliation that we had been hoping for. We got to see it last week. It happened after they finally believed him. It took them a while to believe him and to trust him. But once they did, then, then they were crying and kissing and weeping on one another's necks. And just a, a beautiful time of reconciliation. We got to see that last week. We also got to hear Joseph's comforting explanation for how this had all happened. The brothers had one thing in their mind. They knew what they had done. They knew their evil way back when that, that got Joseph out of Canaan and you know, ended up bringing him to Egypt. They understood that part of the story, but they didn't understand the real part of the story. And so Joseph was able to explain to his brothers the comforting explanation that God is sovereign and God was providentially using your evil to bring about these great purposes of his. We also got to hear Joseph's generous offer to his family, right? Well, now that we've been reconciled and, and you've told me my father is alive, our father is alive, I want all of you to come to Egypt and live near me. And Pharaoh even agreed with that, even made it possible, even made it easier by sending his own carts to, to, to pick up everything that Jacob's family owned and bring it down to, to Egypt with Joseph. And then the, the, the huge surprise when, when the brothers came home and shared all of this news to Jacob, their father. Joseph's not dead. Joseph is alive. And that governor we were telling you about in Egypt, that Egyptian official, that's him. That's Joseph. Well, that almost killed Jacob. We talked about that a little bit last week. But once Jacob got over the shock of that news, he made the decision, okay, we will go to Egypt and I'm going to get to see my long-lost son. Well, that brings us to chapter 46 in verse 1. So I want to read for you the first six verses. That will get us started in this chapter. Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 through 6. You follow along as I read. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba 
and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. Now, as you listened to me read, as you were reading that in your, your, your Bible yourself, did you notice a little deja vu here? Did anything stand out to you as you were listening to what went on with Jacob here, what he was doing and what happened as he did it? Did any of that sound familiar? Was there a little bell ring, ringing and saying, wait a minute, we've seen something like this before? Well, that should be happening. Because if you remember, Jacob had to leave Canaan one time before this for his safety. You remember that? Remember before when Esau was so angry at Jacob that he had threatened to kill him, and so Jacob had to run. He had to leave Canaan and go somewhere else just to protect himself. And what happened that time? When, when Jacob was leaving, when, when Jacob was out the door and he was on his way up to Haran, up to Laban's family to, to protect him and hopefully find a wife while he was up there, what happened when he left Canaan that time? You remember? Well, God appeared to him. Probably on that first night or so when he laid his head on a rock to, to sleep for the night and God came to him in that vision with the ladder that extended from heaven down to earth and angels were going up and down, back and forth on that ladder. You remember that vision, right? Well, God came to him that night and gave him several promises that night just to give him some comfort, to give him some reassurance. That night, God promised Jacob that he would go with him. His presence wouldn't leave Jacob because he was leaving Canaan, no, no. Where he was headed, God was going to go with him. God was going to be with him. Secondly, he promised Jacob that he was going to multiply Jacob's descendants. Yeah, you're leaving Canaan. You're leaving your father and mother. And this is where you thought all of this covenant was going to be worked out. But I'm going with you to this next spot. And I'm going to multiply your descendants. And I also promise that I will bring you back to Canaan someday. Since that period of time, had that happened? Yes. All that God had promised Jacob, the last time he left Canaan for his safety, all of that had come to pass between that night and this day here in Beersheba. Now here Jacob is about to leave Canaan again, again for safety, and for an even greater reason than just his safety, right? I get to go to Egypt and see my long-lost son. Joseph, the one that I thought was dead, and you know, I, I thought I was going to have to quit thinking about him altogether, I get to go to, to Egypt for safety for my whole family, and I get this cherry on top by getting to see my long-lost son. But at the same time, as, as you were listening to the first six verses, did you hear maybe there was a little fear on J Jacob's part? Maybe a little apprehension about leaving Canaan and going down to Egypt, even though it was the, it was the safe play, you know, you, 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 there's food down there. Joseph's down there. Joseph will take care of us. Still, there must have been some apprehension on Jacob's part to go to Egypt. Why? Why would, have he, why would he have been concerned about that? What would have been holding him back? Well, if I gave you time to, to speculate, you could probably come up with a lot of good reasons, starting with the fact that this land, Canaan, 
This is the land that God promised to Jacob's grandfather and Jacob's father and to, to Jacob himself and to all of their descendants. This is the land, not Egypt. Canaan is the land that, that God promised to all of us. And God had brought Jacob back to that land. All of those years up there with Laban and, and, and you know, wanting Rachel and ending up with Leah and then getting Rachel and then having all the children through all the other handmaidens. I mean, after all of that, God brought Jacob back to the land of, of Canaan. And God has blessed Jacob and his family. God has multiplied Jacob and his family tremendously in that land. And Bethel, that special place, house of God, the, the, the place that was the gate to heaven, as Jacob saw it, where he saw the vision of the, the angels coming and going back and forth. This is where God comes to earth and meets with people. Bethel was there in the land of Canaan as well. Add to that the fact that Jacob's grandfather and his father and his dear wife Rachel were buried in that land of Canaan too. Add to that the fact that we all experience, anytime you go somewhere new, Valerie and I went to Greensboro to a show at the Tanger Center yesterday. Never been there before. I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. What's it going to look like? What's parking going to be like? How do you get out afterwards? And How many people are going to be there? Anytime we go somewhere new, there's this unknown. Fear of the unknown rises up. Jacob's headed to Egypt of all places. And so certainly there was a little apprehension about even about where he was headed. So, of course, Jacob was going to be at least a little bit reluctant to leave Canaan. And add to that the question, does God approve of this? I mean, it makes sense, logically, for me to go there. And Joseph has called me to come there with him. And we can get protected there. But I haven't heard from God on this yet. Will God approve of this move from the land he promised us to the land of Egypt? So before they ever got out of Canaan, what did, what did Jacob do? He made a pit stop stopped off in a place called Beersheba. Beersheba, I'm going I'm to offer some sacrifices there at Beersheba. Well, why there? Why not go up to Bethel? Well, Bethel was the opposite direction from Egypt. Beersheba was a lot more conveniently located, already going southwest down toward Egypt. That's where Beersheba was. But still, why stop there? Well, if you've been keeping up with the daily reading, starting in the book of Genesis you saw a lot of answers to this question. You see the place Beersheba pop up over and over and over again when you're looking at Abraham's family, Abraham's descendants. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree there many, many, many years earlier and called on God from that place, Genesis 21. Also, Beersheba is the place where Abraham settled with Isaac after that, that day up on the mountain. When God had told Abraham, take your son, your only son, and offer him on a mountain that I'm going to tell you about. You remember, Abraham did it. Took him up there, pulled the knife out, ready to plunge it in his son, and, and the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, okay, now I believe you. And he reiterated his covenant with Abraham then. Right after that day, Isaac and Abraham, their whole family, settled in Beersheba after that. Beersheba is also the place where God had appeared to Isaac, Jacob's father. He appeared to Isaac there when Isaac's servants were fighting with the servants of Abimelech over all these different wells. Well, God appeared to Isaac there and reiterated the covenant to Isaac one more time there in that spot called Beersheba. And Beersheba is where Jacob was living with his father and his mother and the family before he ran for it and hightailed it up to Haran for his own safety. So when you look at this place, Beersheba, what you find out is this place has history with their family. 
And it's not just history for their family. Their family has history with God in this spot. There has been a history of appearances by God and covenant promises, or at least covenant reiterations from God at this place, Beersheba. So here's Jacob. He's, he, he is starting to leave the land that God promised to his people. He's headed for that strange land, Egypt, and there are logical reasons to go there, but what does God think about this? What's the best way to find that out? Stop off at a place that has been so important for their family and their relationship with God and offer some sacrifices to God there. And maybe you'll hear from God there. Maybe God will show up again. Maybe God will speak about this. Maybe God will make his will known on this subject of them leaving. And what happened? Well, sure enough, just like just like God had done with Jacob's grandfather and his father, God came to Jacob there at Beersheba also. And just like the last time that Jacob left Canaan, God reassured Jacob this time too. That night with his head on a rock, God gave him that vision and spoke to him and told him the covenant promises. Well, here, once again, God shows up and he speaks to Jacob once again and makes those very same promises. You're not going alone. You're not just going to go down with your family and Joseph. I'm going to go with you to Egypt and I'm going to make a great nation from you and I'm going to bring you back here someday. Now, the indication is after you're dead, your son's going to close your eyes and they'll bring your body back here. But still, it's a promise that Jacob's going to return to the land of Canaan someday. And just as a side note at this spot in the study, I don't know what comes to your mind when you study scripture. When you're reading through the scriptures and you know, a lot of you have read through the scriptures many times, and you've heard a lot of preaching from different places in scripture. What happens when you see something that you've seen before? You're looking at God, you're listening to something God says, and oh, wait a second, that's, that's the same thing God said over here, and it's the same thing God said over there. What comes to your mind? Are you ever struck with the consistency of God? No, we cannot put God in a box. <laughs> we cannot always say, well, God always acts this way, and it's always a way that we would understand. No, God is holy. God, God is outside of every box that, that anybody can ever put him in. He's infinite in every way, so we cannot always anticipate what God is going to say or do. But make no mistake, God is consistent. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he does say the same things a lot of times. And he does do the same things a lot of times as well. You also see by, by Jacob's life here that God is constantly present around and, and with his people. No matter where they go, no matter whether they're, whether they're supposed to go there or not, God is always near to his people. He's not leaving them. His people try to leave him a lot of times, but God is, God is always present nearer with his people, and God is always faithful to his people. God has made promises concerning his people and for his people. We're looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how many times has he reiterated these covenant promises, and God is faithful to keep those promises. Even when his, his people, his chosen people, are not faithful, God is faithful, and he's always compassionate to his people. Here's another example of him knowing exactly what Jacob needed at this time and this place for this journey. What did Jacob need to hear? What would set Jacob's mind at ease? What would give him comfort and, 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 and reassurance on his way down to Egypt? What, what would it be? Well, God knows exactly what it is. 
And he shows up to Jacob in a vision and tells him exactly what he knows he needs to hear. And what did Jacob hear? Jacob was so afraid, maybe, that what he wanted was going to be different than what God wanted. Maybe Jacob's choice to go down to Egypt wasn't God's choice. Maybe God wanted him to stay in Canaan where God had brought him back to. Maybe, maybe what he wanted was not the will of God. But here, when God comes to him and God speaks to him, God is promising Jacob that he doesn't have to choose between what he wants and what God wants. You don't have to make a choice here between those two things. They're one and the same. And not only does God approve of this trip down to Egypt, but God is doing this. God is behind this. And God is going to do something great through this as well. Now, I want you to put a finger in Genesis chapter 46. I want you to turn back with me quickly to a couple other passages. Go back to chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, okay? You've got to turn quickly because I'm going to speak quickly. Genesis chapter 13. What is God up to? Why does God want Jacob to go down to Egypt? Is it just so he can see Joseph? Is it just so they won't die in the famine? What is God up to? And has God already explained what he's up to here? Well, back in Genesis chapter 13, we find God speaking not to Jacob, not to Isaac, but he's speaking to the original forefather, the original chosen one, Abraham himself. And I want you to look at verse 14. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. So there's the promise of the land of Canaan, but there's more promise. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, and he can't, then your descendants could also be numbered. So here you have that promise, not just of this land is, is for you and all of your descendants, yes, but also this promise of incredible multiplica- multiplica- <laughs> multiplication, slow down, of all of Abraham's descendants. Okay, you're, you're, you're hearing that promise early on from God here in chapter 13. Turn to chapter 26. Chapter 26. And now we hear God speaking not to Abraham, but to Abraham's son, Isaac. Okay? Here he is speaking to Isaac, and this is another situation, and God's got reasons for coming to his people each time, like we just said a second ago. But Genesis chapter 26, just look at verse 24. God makes an appearance to Isaac, and this is what he says. Genesis 26, 24. And the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. There that is again, right? God's constant. He's with his people. But what, is, what does he say? I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Abraham, I'm going to multiply your descendants. First descendant, Isaac. Isaac, because of my promise to your father Abraham, I'm going to do the same thing for you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. Now come over to chapter 28. Just, just two more chapters to the right. Genesis chapter 28. And let's break into that scene that I, that I mentioned to you a little bit ago. This is probably first night after Jacob leaves Beersheba because Esau has threatened to kill him. And he's on his way up to the northeast to his uncle Laban's family for protection, and hopefully I'll get a wife while I'm there. But on the way out the door, first night probably as he sleeps, God comes to him, chapter 28, 
verse 13, and what does God say to him specifically? And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, above that ladder, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. So there's the promise of the land again. Also, in addition to that, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. Sound familiar? Said it to Abraham, said it to Isaac. Now here he is, he has said it to Jacob as well. And so you come back to chapter 46, and you've got Jacob now leaving Canaan for the second time. First time, running for his life. Second time, kind of running for his life again. The famine was going to get severe, and they may have died if they had stayed in Canaan. Now here he is, he's running for his life, but what we're finding out is this move to Egypt as as much of a question as Jacob may have had about it, there is every reason for Jacob to know this move was an incredible gift from God. It was, an, it was a gift letting him see Joseph again, right? Because he never expected that. It was a gift because here's this great mercy in God providing for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's descendants down in Egypt so they don't starve in the famine. Yes, but it is far more than that. What we know is this move to Egypt was a piece of God's work to fulfill his covenant promises. Promises to Jacob's grandfather, promises to Jacob's father, promises to him, all the same promise to multiply their descendants greatly. And look what is happening here. Come back to chapter 46 if you left there and go to verse 7 with me very quickly. Genesis 46 verse 7. His son's and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, if you've been reading ahead this week, you know that verses 8 down through verse 25 is another one of those sections where I got a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. Neither can Kevin. We wing it pretty well, and you think we know what we're talking about, but we don't. I'm not reading all those names this morning, and I don't have to, okay? Because if you'll go down a little further down to verse 26, the writer gives us a summary of all those names. And I've already thanked Moses uh, over this past week for doing this for us. But verse 26, listen to the summary of, of what all these names are telling us. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. So verses 8 through 25, what we are seeing is that there are 66 direct descendants So these are sons, daughters, grandsons, and granddaughters. Daughters-in-laws don't count. Daughters-in-law. Sons-in-law don't count. Why? Not blood descendants of Jacob. They came in by marriage, but not blood descendants. This is all about direct blood descendants, okay? 66 of them. But then when you come down to verse 27, the number changes a little bit. It might be a little confusing. Look at verse 27. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Wait a minute. Verse 26 said 66. Now Moses is saying, oh, no, as as a matter of fact, it was 70. So what's the difference here? Well, you can do math, can't you? It was 66 up in verse 26, but it wasn't counting who? It wasn't counting Joseph or Joseph's two sons or 
Jacob. Don't leave Jacob out. It's the house of Jacob. So you add those four persons to 66, and anybody can do enough math to come up with the, with the number 70, right? So what Moses is telling us here is there are 70 blood relatives, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now you've got Jacob and these blood descendants, direct descendants from him, 70 counting him in Egypt together at this point in time. Now, let's think about this for a second. 70. That's, that seems like a pretty large number, doesn't it? For, for Jacob's family to be 70 in number at this point in time, especially when you think back to how this all started, who, who, who received this promise first? Abraham did. What do we know about Abraham after he got that promise? That man had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, even do his own trial run himself that failed, and then wait and wait and wait to get one descendant, just one, Isaac, right? Gets Isaac, Isaac gets married to Rebekah, and what happens? Gets the same promise, I'm going to multiply your descendants more than anyone could ever count, and and what ends up happening? They have to wait and wait and wait and wait because Rebekah is barren. And then finally they get two, they get the twins, Jacob and Esau, but Esau is excluded from the covenant. So there's only one descendant at that point in time, Jacob, who we're talking about here. And what happens? He goes up to Laban's house and falls in love with Rachel. And what happens? He has to wait for seven years before he can marry her. And then when he does marry her, she can't have children either. And then it all starts with Leah and the back and forth and the competition, and he starts to have children. So when you get here and you find out that now there are 70 blood relatives who have come from Jacob at this point in time, when you compare it to the past, it seems like, well, you've got a lot of children here at this point in time. That's that's great growth. I mean, here we are 300 years after that first, 300 or so years after that first promise that God made to Abraham, and, and now Jacob's got himself a nice little family going at this point, okay? But what was God's actual promise? And you don't need to turn back there. But when God first showed up to Abraham, you remember there in Genesis chapter 12, those first three verses, those always stand out to us. And God's promise to Abraham originally was, I will make you a great nation. Those are the the words. I will make you Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Did Abraham ever realize that? No. No. Did Isaac ever realize that? No. Had Jacob realized it at this point in time? No, 70 is not a great nation. It's growth. There's no question about that. But you can't call that a great nation at this point in time. But look at Genesis chapter 46, verse 3, as God is speaking to Jacob at Beersheba on his way down to Egypt. What does God tell him? So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not Fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation. Same promise that God had given to Abraham, not just a few more family members, not 70, as impressive as that might sound to us, still that's not a great nation. But now Jacob is hearing that same promise, I'm going to make a great nation of you. But here he is, he's only got 70. There's still a big gap between 70 and great nation. So what's going to happen? Well, I left off one word there in verse 3. What was it? I will make of you a great nation. What's it say? There. There. Where? Egypt. Good. 
he, he's, he's on his way to Egypt. He's in Beersheba. That's down to the south. It's on the way to Egypt. He didn't know if God was into this or not. God says, not only am I into this, but I'm going to do for you what I promised to Abraham, what I promised to Isaac, your father, what I've already promised to you, I'm promising to you again. It's not happening here in Canaan. It's happening there. It's happening down there in Egypt, that place that you're afraid maybe I don't want you to be. Oh, I want you to be there. I'm going with you there. I'm going to be with you and your family in Egypt. I'm not going to leave you there. And while I'm with you there in Egypt, I'm going to turn you and your family into a great nation. And this is what we see happening, starting to happen here at the end of chapter 46. When you start, or, yeah, when you start looking at verses 28 through 30, we're going to see how God starts to put those wheels into motion in a very noticeable way. But, but, but for first, let me show you another incredible reunion. Look at verse 28. Then he, then he, Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Remember that question I asked you at the beginning? What did Jacob just say? Now I can die. I've got everything. I'm seeing my son again. I can die in peace. I've got it all. But here, here you have this incredible reunion. Now, now, first, let's not miss this. Who got sent out ahead to lead the whole family down to Egypt? Was it Reuben, the firstborn? No, it wasn't. Who was it? Judah, the fourthborn. Have you ever wondered why it is that the, the lion comes from the tribe of Judah, that Messiah, Israel's king and savior and the savior for Gentiles as well, comes from that one tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah? Why not Reuben? Why not the firstborn? You would think that would be the special tribe. The, very, the firstborn was always the most special, but it's Judah. Judah was the chosen one. And we've had the privilege over the last few weeks to see how this is working out on the horizontal level. From a human standpoint, what was it that, that ended up giving Judah so much stock that his tribe is the one that ended up being the one that the Messiah is going to come from? Well, here you see it. And we know it didn't just start here. It's not just that Jacob randomly picked one of his sons and said, well, you'll do, lead us down to find Joseph. No, Judah had already started stepping up before this. Remember, Judah had offered his two sons we have to take Benjamin down to Egypt to be able to get Simeon back and to be able to get supplies. Jacob didn't want to do that. So what did Judah do? Hey, if I don't bring back Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. And then when the brothers were standing before Joseph, not knowing he was Joseph, and Joseph wanted to keep Benjamin as a slave and send the rest of the boys back home, Judah said, no, that, that will kill our father. Keep me. Keep me instead. I'll stay here. I'll be your slave until I die. Just let Benjamin and Simeon and the rest of the brothers go back home so my father doesn't die of grief. We've already seen Judah stepping up and sacrificing himself and putting himself at risk for the sake of the whole family, especially for the sake of his father, right? And now what do we see? When it's time to go to this new, strange, scary place and see Joseph, who does Jacob pick and say, you lead us there? It's Judah. You already see this, this, this trans, 
formation. You, you, you see this change in the way things are normally done. You see this happening in Jacob's family so that the tribe of Judah is already starting to stand out and stand above the other tribes. It's not strange to think then that eventually Messiah comes from that tribe. But back to the reunion. Last week we were trying to imagine that reunion between Joseph and his brothers, right? I mean, what was that like for them to hear that's Joseph. He's still alive, and this is him. And, and you know, they, they hugged each other, and they kissed, and they cried. They were so happy to see each other again after all of this time. Now try to rem- imagine this reunion between father and son. It had been 22 years. Think of the last 22 years of your life. 22 years for Joseph. 22 years missing his father. 22 years wondering if he would ever see his father again. And then when he first saw his brothers and, and, and hatched this plan to get the family to Egypt with him, and get his father down to Egypt with him, that had still been many months, maybe even a year, since, since he first started to realize maybe there's a chance here that I'll see my father. Many months, maybe even a year. It's been 22 years for Jacob too, Right? 22 years for Jacob believing he never would see his son again. 22 years thinking, my son is dead. 22 years living with this huge hole in his heart that nothing else could fill over those 22 years. And then when the brothers came home and said, Joseph's alive. He's down there in Egypt. He's the governor over all Egypt, and he wants us to come down there and be with him. It's not like they jumped on a plane and flew down there the next day. It had probably been weeks, if not months, between that announcement and rolling into Egypt and seeing his son. 22 years. And then try to imagine what Jacob was thinking when Joseph rolls up in his chariot. Last time he had seen Joseph, what did he look like? Oh, he's that snotty-nosed little 17-year-old kid wearing that robe of many colors, and and that's, that's who he's seen the last time. Now he's a 39-year-old man riding in a chariot, decked out in all the garb of Egypt, second in charge of basically the world at this point in time, probably surrounded by servants and maybe some soldiers as well. This is Joseph who's coming toward him at this point in time. What is Jacob thinking? How does he grasp all of this? How does he take all of this in? I mean, what are, the, what are the thoughts like? What are the feelings like? Well, it's no wonder that Moses describes it as they wept on each other for a good while, for a long time. This wasn't just a kiss, oh, I missed you, and let's get on with business. I mean, they hugged, and they kissed, and they cried for quite a long time, and that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, there's this long, long river of memories and thoughts and feelings. There's all this pain and all of this joy that both of them have had and are feeling now at this point, and all of it's got to come rushing out at the same time. That probably took a while for them to work through that initially. And for Jacob, this reunion with Joseph was so rewarding, it was so satisfying that what did he say? Verse 30, let me die since I've seen your face. I don't need anything else to make me happy. I lack no peace anymore. Nothing else can happen between now and the end of my life that will add to what I'm experiencing right now. I can die in peace. For him, Joseph was the end all to be all. For him, Joseph was the incomparable prize. There's no greater treasure 
than this, right? But Jacob didn't die right away. It wasn't like God said, okay, since you said that, you're out of here. That This is not the end for, for Jacob. You know, he, he has more life after this, and his funeral is not next on our timeline. Next is what we read in verses 31 to 34. So glance back there with me at verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my, family, my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay, think back with me again for just a second. When Joseph sent his brothers back home to dad to tell dad Joseph is alive and to get dad and bring him down to Egypt, what instructions did Joseph give to his brothers? Go home and tell dad this, come down to me, live in the land of Goshen near me. That was his instructions to his brothers. Go home, get dad, tell him Joseph is down in Egypt, and Joseph says, come down to me, live in the land of Goshen near me. Now, Joseph had great authority in Egypt. No question about that. He was second, right under Pharaoh, and he had all this authority to do so many things that he wanted to. Pharaoh trusted him like his own son, right? But what we realize is Joseph didn't have unlimited authority. There were certain things, evidently, that he had to have Pharaoh sign off on. And evidently, this promise of the land of Goshen to his family was something that Joseph didn't think he could just give to them without Pharaoh's approval of this, okay? But at the same time, Joseph knew exactly how to get Pharaoh to approve of that. And so Jacob's kind of scheming, or Joseph's scheming a little bit here. It's not, he's not lying at all, but he just knows what it's going to take to get Pharaoh to do what he wants Pharaoh to do. So two things would go on. First, Joseph's going to go talk to Pharaoh. And Joseph is going to tell Pharaoh, my family's here. I, you know, I told you about them. You sent carts to get them. Well, they're here now. And they're shepherds. You know, they, they take care of livestock. Sheep, goats, camels, donkeys. That's, that's been our family's um, world for generations. And so they're here now, and they've got all their sheep and goats and camels and donkeys with them. I'm going to tell Pharaoh that. Then when you meet Pharaoh, and you're going to because he's going to want to meet you because he cares about me and I've told him about you. When you meet him and he asks you what you do for a living, tell him, we're shepherds, livestock. That's our gig. It's always been our gig. Sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, our grandfather, our father, uh, our, 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 our great-grandfather. That's, that's what we've always done. That's what we still do today. Now, why that emphasis on their occupation? Why not talk about other things about their family throughout their history? Well, our hobbies have been this down through the years. And, and, and no, occupation, occupation, occupation. Make sure you tell Pharaoh about your occupation. I'm going to tell Pharaoh about your occupation as well. Why? What difference would that make to Pharaoh? Well, Joseph knew that when Pharaoh heard that his family were shepherds and that they were there with their flocks and their herds, Pharaoh would want to keep Joseph's family separate from the rest of the Egyptians, at least separate from, I would say, the main population areas. Why? Well, logically speaking, you can't have all those animals wandering around the city streets, can you? 
And there's not that much for them to eat in the populated areas as well. So, you know, just logistically and rationally, it makes more sense for them not to be where everybody else is when they've got all of those animals with them. But there's something bigger here. And it was right at the end of verse 34, that last statement, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. What's that all about? And why is Moses adding it here? Or why did Joseph bring it up to his brothers? Well, It's not really clear, at least I can't find the clear one answer, why shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. Abomination, they despised them. Shepherds were disgusting, despicable, revolting. At all costs, if you're an Egyptian, stay away from a shepherd. Oh, they're just awful. And when you study the Egyptians, you find out that there was a certain amount of national pride to these people. There was a certain amount of arrogance. They, they, they kind of were standoffish to, to all other people. They, they had this way of looking down on all other people, even if they weren't shepherds. But shepherds, I mean, the shepherds were on this, they weren't even on the, the, the ladder. It's not like they had the lowest rung on the ladder. They're below the ladder for some reason. And you think, well, well why? What was it about shepherds? Well, we can speculate a little bit. If any of you have ever seen a picture of an Egyptian man, what do you see? They always look the same, don't they? Yeah, they kind of look like me on top. They were clean-shaven, and not just the head, beard, whole body, clean-shaven. They seem to always be wearing white, right? It's like Mr. Clean, just in Egypt many, many years ago. It's always the picture that you see, and not that pictures are always right, but they are based on a certain amount of historical fact. This this seemed to be the way of, of the Egyptians. Now, think about a shepherd. Ever seen a shepherd? completely clean-shaven, wearing white? They don't, do they? Shepherds are actually just the opposite of that. Shepherds are following around behind a bunch of sheep and goats all day long, stepping in a bunch of sheep and goat stuff all day long, their sandals, sleeping outside on the dirt all the time. Joseph's brothers were not clean-shaven. They probably had longer hair and long beards. So there's this great divide in, in appearance between the Egyptians and all other people, most other people, but, but especially shepherds. They look differently. They smell differently. They carry themselves differently. Their, 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 their cultures, their way of going about life is so much different and in an Egyptian's eyes, so much below us. This is Jacob's family. This is Joseph's family. Yes, Joseph has become an Egyptian. He looks like the rest of them, but his family doesn't. They're very, very different, and they fit into that category of abominable people, okay? But Joseph also knew, even though Pharaoh will be thinking that way, he'll want to separate them. There's no question about that, but he also respects me. He loves me. He thinks highly of me. He'll want to honor me, so what else will he do? He'll want to give my family the best separate land the best rural farmland available because he thinks so highly of me. What's that land? Goshen. It's the land over in the fertile plain by the Nile River where where grass grew even when there was a drought because there's water in the river. And that just happened to be where Pharaoh's own livestock was kept and grazed and taken care of. Not that he went down there, but that's where his own livestock was taken care of. And so Joseph knew all of this about Pharaoh. He knew how Pharaoh would respond. He knew what Pharaoh would do for his family, and it's exactly what Joseph wanted. Joseph didn't want his family scattered all over Egypt. He didn't want them assimilated into the cities. He didn't want them influenced by all the culture of Egypt. He didn't want them intermarrying with Egyptian people. 
He wanted them separated from the Egyptian people and together. Where Joseph could spend time with them together by himself and where they could continue to prosper in their occupation of raising and taking care of livestock. That's what Joseph wanted. And what did God want? Why did God move them down there to take them from being a small family of 70 people to being what? A great nation. This is what God was up to. He's made that very, very clear. And that would not happen if his people mixed in with the Egyptian people. Then they would just become Egyptians. Egypt would become a great nation, even a greater nation, more in number. But God didn't want his people becoming Egyptians and growing the nation of Egypt. He wanted his people to become a great nation on their own. So God's plan was to grow his nation in Egypt by putting them down there in what looks like their own little greenhouse, right? I'll stick my people over there by the Nile River in the fertile plain, the land of Goshen, and nobody's going to bother them over there because they're filthy shepherds and because Pharaoh is protecting them. He's not going to be around them, but he's not going to let anybody bother them at all. Who's behind all this? God is. He's brilliant, folks. God is absolutely brilliant. It demonstrates it right here. But let me just add to this. Let me back you up a little bit further. You remember when Abraham and Sarah were married and they went down to Egypt that first time? Remember that? What happened? Well, Pharaoh saw Sarah. She's pretty. She's that's a beautiful woman. I'll take her into my harem. He didn't know that she was married. They said, oh, Abraham said, she's my sister, trying to protect himself. You remember what happened after Pharaoh found out that she was a married woman? What happened? He gave Abraham a whole bunch of sheep, and goats, and camels, and oxen. Get out of here. It happened again. King Abimelech, they come into his territory, finds out about this beautiful woman, I'll take her for my own. What happened? God comes to him and says, you're a dead man. (laughs) That's another man's wife. I'll kill all of you. And so Abimelech says, take your wife, get out of here, and oh, here, so that you'll show mercy and your God will, he gives him more animals. Adding animals on top of animals on top of animals. Then you remember when Jacob is up there with his uncle Laban, right about the time that he's, he's getting ready to leave, and he hatches that plot that, hey, listen, you can pay me by letting me have all the spotted and the speckled and the streaked goats and, and sheep, the ones that nobody wants. I'll just take all of those. And what did God do? He multiplied those like crazy so that when, by the time Jacob actually left Haran up there, he leaves with all of these flocks and herds. What is God doing? Why is God adding sheep and goats and camels and oxen to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And Why is he doing that? You just saw it. He's using all of those animals as his tool when they're down in Egypt. Those sheep and goats and oxen and cattle will end up separating them from the Egyptian people where they can be off over by themselves, over in the fertile plain, and God can grow them by themselves, unaffected by the Egyptians for all of these years. And he's been working on it all along. This wasn't just a spur of the moment, oh, I'll get him over the Goshen. He's been planning this all along. And when I was thinking about this this past week, I couldn't help but think about Paul's statement at the end of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You have no idea what God's doing all the time, but you know he's doing it. He's doing big things. He is hundreds and thousands of years ahead of his people, putting things in place, putting things in motion right now that are going to come into play down the road. And it's not accidental. These are not mistakes. This is the sovereign God always providentially working the end from the beginning, making everything happen exactly the way he wants it to happen. And we're seeing it right here. So this is the storyline up to date. End of chapter 46, house of Jacob is in Goshen with Joseph. There's the teaching. Let me preach for a minute as we get ready for the Lord's Supper. We've already made the point over and over and over again that God has been behind every bit of this history of Jacob's family. It has been God sovereignly, providentially using the hatred of Joseph's brothers to move and put Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, in the lowest places and the deepest hardship. You think about where Joseph ended up when he went down to Egypt. Sold, presumed dead, enslaved, falsely accused and imprisoned, and then forgotten. All of that by the hand of God. Why? To get Joseph in a position where he could get exalted and do everything that it would take to save many people's lives. People from all nations, but especially the lives of his own family members. But this morning from chapter 46, we're seeing that it's even bigger than that. God isn't just using Joseph to save his family's lives in the famine. He is, but that's not all that he's doing. While the rest of the world is dying in this famine, while they're losing everything they have, while they're spending everything they have and selling everything they have just to buy enough to survive this drought, while they're just trying to figure out how they can stay alive, what's going on with Joseph's family? They're thriving. Their situation is improving. They're receiving the very best of Egypt, the best land, the best possessions. Their families and their animals, they're going to be multiplying like rabbits down there in Egypt. They're enjoying family relationships like they never have before. And Jacob is enjoying the greatest thing he could have ever hoped for. What's happening? He is in the presence and the glory of his beloved son. He is filled with joy by being with his beloved son once again. Now, when you hear that about Jacob's family and the life of Joseph, does it make you think of anyone else? Where are our minds always supposed to go? To Jesus Christ. Everything is a road to Christ. Everything is a picture of Jesus Christ. And here we see it once again. Think of Christ. God the Father sovereignly sends his only son, his beloved son, into this world, and he puts him in the lowest position possible, a man. The Son of God becomes a man, an ordinary human being, nothing special, even in the form of a bondservant. And as that lowly man, Jesus is rejected by his own brothers. He's rejected by his own countrymen. He's rejected by people he served sacrificially and faithfully. He is falsely accused and arrested. He's betrayed by his own disciple, sold too. He's abandoned by his other disciples. He is traded for a convicted criminal, 
all to put him in the position where he would be executed by his father using the Romans, but then raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of his father to do what? To save many people alive. People from all nations, especially his own brethren, to save them all from eternal death. You see it? Joseph's story here is another picture of Christ. But folks, this gets even better. Not only was he serving us from saving us from God's judgment and eternal death that's going to come in the future to so many people, but he's giving us great privileges now. Just like Jacob's family was enjoying what the rest of the world was not enjoying, that's what's going on for God's people now because of Christ. While people all around us are spending their wages for what does not satisfy, for things that cannot fulfill them spiritually, while people all around us are dying spiritually and eternally, we are enjoying new life in Christ. New life with Christ is what I ought to say. Like Jacob's family, because of what God did through Christ, we are being blessed with the greatest gifts from the King. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're enjoying forgiveness. We're enjoying justification and reconciliation and adoption and illumination and sanctification and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You get it? We are thriving spiritually. We are protected. We are growing. We are getting stronger every day while the world around us is dying and trying to figure out how to keep from dying. And on top of it all, just like Jacob, we're getting to enjoy the greatest gift of all, the beloved son. We get to enjoy him like never before. We get to see God's glory in his face. We get to see him in all of his splendor. We get to receive his boundless love for us. We get to be set apart to fellowship with him that the rest of the world does not get to enjoy. The the hole, that empty hole that is inside of us or was, is filled by him, the one who is like no other, the one who is the end all to be all. And that's what this Lord's Supper is about. The Lord's Supper is given to us as a picture of what the Son of God went through so that we could have all of that. His humanity, his lowly humanity, and his death as a human being. That's what these symbols represent. And then when we eat and we drink together, that's also a picture. What are we saying? We are saying that we feast on him, the beloved one. Everything that he is, everything that he did for us, that is our joy. That is our pleasure. That is our satisfaction. He is our fulfillment, his life and his death. And we eat and we drink to express that in this particular ordinance. But here's the thing. If it's just in the ordinance, we have to wonder how real it is. What about our life? Are we living that way? I mean, what I just said, are we actually living that way? Are we living like we've been given the best there is? Not just that we're waiting for it somewhere down the line, but are we living like we are enjoying privileges that no one else in the world gets to enjoy? Are we living like our greatest desires and longings have been filled by Him? 
the one who is like no other, the one who is the end all to be all? Are we living like Jacob when he saw Joseph? You know, I wonder about myself. Jacob could not contain himself when he saw Joseph. I mean, he had never dreamed that this could happen again. And the one thing that he had been missing for, for 22 years, it's now happened. And now I don't need anything else. I can die happy now because there's nothing else better than this that could happen to me in the rest of my life. Joseph is everything I wanted. Do we live that way about Christ? You remember old man Simeon in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus at eight days to the temple to, to fulfill the law? Simeon's there at the temple and he sees Mary and Joseph carrying Jesus, the baby Jesus, into the temple. You remember Simeon goes and takes him up in his arms and I'd love to have seen the old man. He probably wouldn't give him back. He's holding on, holding on to him so tight. But what, was, what were his words? Let your servant depart in peace. I can die in peace. This is everything I've been waiting for. I've been wanting to see Messiah. Here he is. I need nothing more. I am happy. I can't be any more joyful. I'm lacking nothing. I've got every bit of peace that is possible for a human being. Just take me now, Lord. Do we live that way because of what we have in Christ? Not just from Christ. Yeah, all of those privileges are great. But what was the greatest thing that Jacob enjoyed? Joseph, not Goshen. Not green grass. Joseph. We enjoy justification and adoption and, and reconciliation and, and peace and spiritual growth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But, it, but if that's our prize, we've come up short. What's the prize? Christ. He's the only thing that fills the hole. He's the only thing that satisfies fully and eternally. The, on, the only one who fulfills our greatest desires and longings is Christ. And we are the ones who ought to be showing that because we're the only ones experiencing it. The only ones given those privileges. So I can't answer for you and you can't answer for me, but back to that original question that I asked you at the beginning. What is it that makes or would make you say, I need nothing more. I've got it all. I can die in peace. Is it Christ? And don't just say it as you eat and drink. Are you living it? As people watch us, is that what they see? As Christ watches us, is that what he sees? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for another picture. Shows us how brilliant you are. Your sovereignty, your providential workings, they're unmistakable. How can you read Genesis chapter 46 and come away with any other impression than that you were there, you were active, you were in control, and all praise to your name. We also thank you for scenes like this that, that move us to Jesus. Pictures, imperfect pictures, road signs, illustrations, types, shadows. Not Jesus, but pointing us to Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you sent the better Joseph, the infinitely better Joseph. Joseph saved people from physical death by his plan to store up grain. Jesus saves from eternal spiritual death by his own death in our place. So Father, I pray that you will use this passage and this picture to make us appreciate Christ more than ever and make us see and think and feel that he is the prize 
He is the pearl of great price. He is the buried treasure that we'll sell everything else just to make sure we have him because nothing else compares in value. We want Jesus to be our treasure, our prize. We don't want to say he's our treasure and then spend all of our time looking for other treasures. And I'm afraid that's what many of us believers do. We, we say the right words. We do. We, we, we make the right claims. But then our life shows that there's still a hole there, evidently. We're still looking for other things to fill it, other things that might satisfy us more, other things that might give us a little more peace, a little more hope, a little more happiness. And it shouldn't be that way. Even, in, even life at its hardest, we've still got Christ. Everything that comes from him, but we've got him too. And so we praise you for that gift this morning. And we praise you for the gift of your word that, that tells us even more about him. We praise you for your Holy Spirit who lives in us and he's shining all the light on Christ to make sure he gets the glory. And Father, if, if we're not treating Christ that way, we beg your forgiveness. I pray that you'll use the scriptures to bring us to repentance, to turn us around in our thoughts and our feelings and our actions so that he gets all the glory he deserves from us and we get all the joy that is to be found in him. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.